Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. My name's Claire O'Connor. I'm here this week with my co-host, Michelle Bourne. As always, we'll be having a look at the weekend papers and the biggest stories of the week from a left perspective. The Week at Work is a part of Left Block, a political education and media project. And you can find out more about us or if you'd like to support us, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash left block. And that's block with a C and no K. Um, so this week, we're joined by Nem Cairns, who is a disability and LGBTQ advocate and board secretary with Disabled Women Ireland. So, Michelle, I'm going to go to you, first of all, just to give us the front page that you've been looking at. Yeah, so this weekend, I had a look at the weekend edition of the Irish Times. It's it's not the most padded out with news this weekend, but it does have a nice one to get us kicked off on the front. Um, the title reads, uh, Large Volume of AstraZeneca Due Soon. Um, but actually, if you read the article, it's not really much about that. There's there's a bit about that, but there's much more juicier stuff hidden in there. It's just interesting that they led with the, the AstraZeneca PR line as, as the heading, which definitely helps them. But actually buried in there, um, you know, it, yeah, obviously it talks about the, the weeks of criticism over the impact of reliable deliveries of the state's uh, vaccination rollout. It talks about, you know, obviously that AstraZeneca has been falling short in its deliveries. But actually, in the middle of it, it talks about the vaccine uh, rollout was hit with fresh controversy um, as it emerged that staff from a fee-paying school in Bray and childcare workers got left over jabs in the private Beacon Hospital in South Dublin. Now, I think that's probably the heading they probably should have led with rather than what AstraZeneca told them to lead with. (laughs) Um, But anyway, I I might be cynical, but yeah. So I think it's it's very commendable that the Beacon have recognised, you know, that they're able to, to decide that teachers and childcare workers should get the vaccine. And, you know, you know that's brilliant. And we, we definitely agree, frontline workers should be getting it. But of course, it's only the ones who have the connections up in high places and are of the, you know, uh, people who are in private schools um, from private hospitals and all of that. So, you know, it, it really kind of shows that, um, you know, that there, we are living in two different societies here where some people can get the vaccine at a way, jump ahead as much as, far, much further than everyone else um, when they should. But I suppose, um, yeah, and another point to note as well was um, obviously this this private school is the CEO's children uh, go to this school as well, the public schools in the area that were actually closer to the hospital, shockingly enough. Um, you know, of course, it would have to go to the private school. So I suppose, yeah, like, I, I don't know why they decided that they deserve them more, but it, it seems like the connections that people have, you know, is really what kind of um, gets people ahead of the queue on this one. And I like... It's interesting as well, because obviously AstraZeneca is a publicly funded vaccination. So there, there's all that, you know, private and uh, enterprises are benefiting from this as well. But I think there, there's a point here as well, because I remember being absolutely fuming as well, like about fuming all the time, to be fair. But like two months ago, um, or in January, actually, when the Beacon uh, were in the news before, and it was kind of one of the first times I'd heard of them, because like, I wouldn't be anywhere near a private hospital, so I don't know how I would have known. It came to my attention um, in January when you know, they had put out, um, they basically had refused to sign contracts with the state in order to, um, you know, to support with the surge beds if it needed during the, for the crisis. And there was a lot of outrage at that at the time. They were the only private hospital not to do it. And I remember being like, that's disgraceful. And I went, went on their Facebook and they had all of this lovely PR stuff like, look at us, we're amazing. We're, we are vaccinating all the healthcare staff. And I'm like, you, I know this is a PR exercise that you're talking about all the healthcare staff that you're vaccinating and you're not talking about the fact that you're not signing up to the, to the PR surge. But it's just interesting that this second time that we're seeing them in the news again. Um, now it is on the front page of the, the Weekend Times and I ha- this has come out today and already this news is almost redundant. 
um, because we've heard that um, since this article has been posted, um, that the, the Beacon um, have now, the HSE, the department have actually withdrawn. They have now said that Beacon cannot uh, do the vaccinations. So they've suspended them in the last couple of hours. So this is a very live situation. <laughs> there is like a lot of things going on. Um, you know, it is really interesting to see. And as well, like it's just referring back to the article in the newspaper as well. It does say as well, you know, that there there might be talks of um, uh, lower, uh, kind of looking at the relaxing the 5k limit as well a little bit. But we're, it's kind of unsure what will happen. But I think there's going to be news coming out in the next week or so as to that. Um, but yeah, there, then it does warn then, uh, you know, senior senior pub, public health official sources yesterday warned that if the government does something in April that triggers a wave, they have a disaster on their hands. And if they hold off from May or June, it's completely different risk profile. So there is a real balancing act at the moment. So kind of people are very cautious. People are afraid. But then, um, yeah, there's there's a lot going on there. Um, and I'm sure people will have a lot to say about that as well in, in, in a minute. And there's a... Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll let you jump in on that. Yeah, that's a cracker of a headline, all right. Um, funnily enough, it doesn't appear on the front of the Irish Examiner. So maybe I think that's definitely going to be a big one that we need to come back to. Um, but yeah, on the front of the Irish Examiner weekend edition this week, one of the bigger stories was actually half of students miss out on HPV vaccine. So this talks about how Stephen Teep in particular has come out um, on the figures, the number of people who, a number of teenagers who have been uh, vaccinated this year compared to last year around HPV. So obviously, uh, I think last year it was like 80% of students were vaccinated in their first year. And this year it's just 53%. So, I mean, like that's a massive drop. And obviously that's a massive worry because then it increases the the risk profile around cervical cancer. And we've done so much work over that in the past couple of years, particularly after the cervical check debacle. I think it really, the amount of campaigners, you you know, we have the likes of Vicky Phelan, we have the likes of Laura Brennan who passed away, you know, we had um, Emma Vick-Bahuna. And it's just, it's actually really sad to see those numbers drop out of, well, it seems like they just haven't been able to the skills or they haven't been able to set up the clinics or go into the skills. I don't know if it's, it doesn't go into the level of detail about whether it's actually that the skills were closed so they couldn't get in. But I think people like Alan Kelly and a couple of other people have been up in the doll saying like the government needs to intervene and make sure there's a really specific and intense plan and in getting those numbers back up. I think the, the worry is more about the fact that there doesn't seem to be a plan to catch up then an acknowledgement of that like obviously it will be a little bit more difficult this year there's a there's a massive picture on the front of the on the the front of the paper there Rebecca Saunders talks for the first time about the killing of her daughter Clarissa this is a devastating was the picture of a beautiful little girl I think she was she was four or five um and she was drowned by her dad and it basically just says it's very very hard to think that my little girl is in his arms forever and it's a, it's a really devastating story I went in and I had a look at it it was eight years ago and I think we, we spoke a lot last week around um the, the amount of stories around violence against women and girls and just it seems to be even going to the paper again this week there was just so many of them um so i just wanted to kind of note that yeah another story on the front of the page t-shock seeks department review after dossier expose and we're going to go to ketnem in a minute who really knows a lot more about this than any of us uh but this is just an extraordinary story so obviously it's it's we have a whistleblower who has went on, he actually went on prime, prime time the other night, but RTE exposed the other day the fact that this was some, this was an external auditor who was working in the department, had a regular login and basically was able to access this dossier that had been created about autistic children who many are now adults and their families um, as a result of cases that are long kind of dormant. And yeah, it's, it's, it's just an... I haven't read a story in a long time that I that actually made me stomach flip. You know, you're so used to these kind of things, particularly when it comes to government. I was reading this and there was kind of a really long article on it when it first came out um, on the RTE website. 
And just the deeper I was going into it, I had this, my stomach was just absolutely flipping. Like I've been through the ADHD assessment process privately and that like, I know what it's like to go in and sit across from somebody and the level of detail you have to go in and how honest you have to be to go through the assessment process, you know, and to look for any kind of supports and to think that, because for a minute I, I, I forgot that I had went privately, privately and I was kind of thinking, oh my God, like, can, you know, can people access that information? And the thoughts that all of that information could just be passed over to a government department, not out of any kind of fear for your health or safety or any kind of, you know, regard and want to offer you support, but to actually exploit your your position as a family at the moment. Like the reason that these dossiers were collected was specifically so the department could exploit a vulnerability within a family um, so that they could then approach them to close a case. Like they were asking questions about addictions in the family. Like they wanted to know about, uh, you know, issues that families are having paying their mortgage. Like if there was job losses, like the level of detail that they had is just so fair. I mean, there's people like Garrett Noble has talked about, you know, he's not, he's not as far coming out as far as, as to say it is illegal. He's saying we need to see a timeline on this. I mean, it's extraordinary to think that these families thought that these cases were, were essentially not live. Like they were dormant. They weren't going any further with them. And yet the department were able to just ring up doctors and say, you know, I, I want any piece of information that this family has handed over and what should be a private safe space like the the exploitation of the situation on the department is absolutely horrific I don't know I don't know to be honest what the legalities are around this in terms of with the doctors because if I had sat with a doctor and given them that kind of information I can't even imagine what it would be like to know that they pass that on to somebody else now I'm going to go to you because you are the person who knows all about this and this really is the kind of biggest story of the week I think people are just sickened by it thanks Claire yeah I wouldn't say I know all about it because so much of it is still not come out and it's still untransparent and that's one of the major problems with this it's absolutely staggering breach of trust it's just really beyond the pale um and i really feel we need to keep paying attention to this because the implications of it are potentially huge across the board Um, the department of health statement said that they see this as normal practice which is not reassuring in the slightest. If this is normal practice in cases of litigation, does that mean they've been doing it to cervical check people? Does that mean they've been doing it to anyone taking litigation on unfair dismissal or injury in the workplace? Like how how broad is this normal practice? And it's as as an autistic person, this has just really been an absolute gut punch. It is devastating. Um, the 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 thoughts that it wasn't just the assessment of need process, which again is an issue. And I'm I as far I am not a GDPR expert, but in my layperson's understanding, there is no tick box on any form that gives blanket consent for the rest of your life for your information to be used in secret manners without your knowledge or consent, however the state decides to do so. Um, this isn't normal practice in litigation. No other entity in the country has information than the state. It's a state abuse of power. And whether it turns out that the technically letters of certain laws were breached, it is still an abuse of power and it is still a massive ethical breach. And I just want to highlight that these were people going into their, their psychiatrists, their psychologists, talking about their struggles, talking about their most private, intimate issues, and then that being available to an entire department worth of civil servants, we should all be outraged. Uh, and it's it's also reflective of an ongoing concern amongst disabled people more generally 
of how our information is collected or used. Many of us are often troubled by kind of going, like too many people seem to know far too much about me. And we have a, a lack of clarity. We're not sure. And we don't even know who to direct freedom of information requests or GDPR access request to, how to frame them. You don't get any help with that. And you're sure how many of us are GDPR experts in our day jobs. Um, yeah, and I just want to say what's particularly, it was great to see the, the children's ombudsman draw attention to the fact that these are people, they only took a case against the state because the state had breached their rights. These weren't trying to get compensation or nuisance cases. These were, this was, the system was broken and they couldn't get medical and educational access for their kids as guaranteed under the state guidelines under the old assessment needs. And their only recourse was to take a case so their kid could have support, so their kid could go to school. The basic rights that people expect and, and the state's response was to then spy on them and try to gather this personal information to use against them. It's also very chilling for anyone in the future that has to that has any issues with the state. This should not be normal practice. That's actually something you, you said there is, and it's one of the most worrying things as well, it's that going forward, like this is going to have such a chilling effect as well on anybody reaching out for help. Like we listen, I think we all know this, the kind of work that we all do, we know that for a lot of people, you know, you're kind of forced to your knees when you're asking to stay for help in a lot of instances anyway. You have to kind of self-flagellate, you know, to to be worthy of support in so many instances. Like the state that the arms and the institutions of the state that should be there to protect you or at least help you when things go wrong far too often compound people's pain. And this is a prime example of that. But I think you're like, this is an abuse of power. Like this is abusive. Like they actually, they wanted to know when a family might be so desperate that they might be willing to, to you know, to settle. And I, I read a really disturbing piece as well the other day um, about how in these cases, like there's certain times where if you can get a family to settle in, in a particular way, that they actually will have to absorb their own costs. So it's not just making this going away. Like you could be settling this family with a load of money. Like there's just, I'm with you on this. Like how big does this go? And when they came out and said that this is, this is fine, this is normal practice. I mean, uh, that to me is terrifying because it's like, and, and just one last thing, I'm going to go back to you now, now in a second before we go to Michelle, but the, the GDPR stuff, I remember listening to Simon McGarr, who was like my go-to for, and most people I think go-to for anything relating to GDPR, but and when he was talking about when the GDPR regulations were brought in, Ireland didn't sign up to an element of it. I think it was the fines that meant that they, you know, you know, the massive fines, the way that they could go up into the millions, that the government exempted themselves basically from that, which, you know, of course they did, because they probably know that they're breaking people's GDPR and human rights all over the place. So I just, I, I'm with you. I don't think we can even comprehend the depths that this goes to yet because it's so, it's such a breach of trust. It's such an abuse of power. And it's like, these are the people we're expected to turn and ask to, for help. Yeah, I, I it, it just beggars belief. And I really want to kind of shout out to Shane Core for doing a massive public service. And really, and it's very worrying that the, the, the department's first reaction when approached by RTE was to threaten them under the Official Secrets Act. Are they seriously saying that disabled children are enemies of the state? I, I, This also needs to be kept an eye on so that upstanding whistleblowers who have 
the public's best interest at heart, like Shane Core, are not penalised in future. Over the course of our history, they have done an invaluable service and they need to be protected. Um, also, just to like the, the depth, I, it's very difficult to explain and express just how much this has com- has the potential to completely undermine public trust. This was retrospective information as well. This is very worrying, the thought that anytime you go to your doctor or your psychiatrist or anyone else, and then something happens in the future, that all this stuff can be dug up and used against you. This needs independent, and it does need to be independent investigation to restore, to have any chance of restoring public trust. Um, this is really just, I can't, words can't express. And I want to highlight something that is particularly sickening, like really disturbing, shaking and sickening to autistic people that I don't think really comes across to, to non-autistic people. So to put it in context, I'm an autistic person with a cervix. I have the standard Irish person problems with nudity and you know we're all no matter what most of us are very repressed from our upbringing I would be less shaken disturbed and sickened to hear that a branch of the civil service had access to a video of me getting a smear test than a video of me having a meltdown having a meltdown is one of the most vulnerable and intimate times in an autistic person's life and for that to be shared with anyone who's curious that to be shared with even one person is just appalling. It's absolutely appalling. And I cannot see any justification in any sort of litigation for that being shared. They did not just... Those children also, let's let's face it, we're not litigants. Where is their right to privacy? Absolutely. And I think off the back of like, you know, not off the back of, we're still discussing it, the mother and baby homes and how the staff is, or how the the state is handling that. It's very clear that the, the government don't know how to handle data in any way or don't maybe don't want to engage with that that process. And I think there was a, there's a, a very small piece, actually, surprising this didn't take up more page room on the, in the Irish Times, to be quite honest, in the weekend edition. But there was um, a solicitor, Roger Murray, was uh, quoted in it because he acted um, for about 40 children with autism in cases against the state between 1998 and 2011. So it's, it's very, it's, it, there's a big chance that he, some of the cases he's taken might be involved in this. And he said, you know, amongst, amongst the issues that he and his clients want clarified are when did the gathering of information on families and children involved in the litigation start? Who sanctioned it? Why is the information still being stored? And why does this practice continue? And like the, the one thing that he said was like, you know, was that information to be used by the state in a legal strategy against some of its weakest citizens? It's absolutely disgusting. It's, it's I actually, yeah, like, yeah, I, I look, I, I, I and as I said to, to them previously, like, you know, you'd, you'd like to think that you're surprised um, when stuff like this happens um, from the state, another failing of the state. But like when, when, does it, like when does it, like, I've, been, like, I've just become so not surprised by these, the shocking revelations that come out literally on a weekly basis now at this stage from the state, uh, depending on what the topic is. Yeah, I have to be like, I, this is, I, this did shock me still. I think and um, that is so powerful how you put that across there because I just it's terrifying to think that 
you now might have to go into a doctor's room or a psychiatrist's room or a psychologist's room and be guarded because that is so detrimental to our health. Like it's just, I like it. It's just, it's it's an aspect of health as well. I think I look at young kids particularly. Say, got like I mean, a lot of the adult services are basically non-existent. But the assessment of needs, how they've changed the assessment of needs to make themselves look compliant and just completely decimate the level of service that they you know they gave before because they were they weren't providing the level of service required. They were violating kids' human rights and so instead of increasing the level of service they just changed the the, the goalposts but I think um Shane Carr and how you, you touched on it there like how we've treated whistleblowers in this country is like I don't think anybody would be surprised there's no learning from it and the state have now tried to use their power to silence somebody and maybe it's too late to silence Shane Carr but that threat is really for the next person who thinks of speaking now one of the things that's done me more than anything was the fact and I think it's what's done Shane so much I think he said that that's why he came forward was because he just had a regular login like he everybody in the department of social care so people who are you know working in relation to older people people like like all of these different areas had access to this like private doesn't feel strong enough like private it's intimate you said it there actually now it's, it's the most intimate information and and again like you said the those children weren't litigants but the, there's information on siblings there's information about their relationship like about finances like this is like what I'd imagine a, a corporate company, the you know, the most ruthless of corporate companies hiring a company to go and do this deep dive on somebody that they're, you know, they're in a court case for millions over. Not a state department to, to attack the most vulnerable people that have already had to take them to court over, you know, the human rights being violated. So like, I just, Nam, you've been doing some great work as well. You, you've raised a petition on this over the past couple of days and it seems to be getting really good traction. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, so in addition to my role with Disabled Women Ireland, um, I'm I'm part of a, a, a group called Autistic Adults in Ireland. And they, as I said, this has sent huge shockwaves through the, the autistic community in particular because we've been targeted. And once again, it seems like we're not seen as fully human you know any person in the country would be absolutely horrified I, it's very baffling to us why there's a little exep- exemption where people don't find it as horrifying when it's autistic people um and as you said there's so many questions for for everybody everybody in this country needs to feel safe to access the medical or psychological support they need we've been talking about the importance of mental health so much over this past year this is a huge barrier to that if people to, to their 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 counselors and um, so it is absolutely crucial that this uh, an independent investigation is done to see the scope and breadth of this um, and to this end uh, autistic adults Ireland have launched an uplift petition calling for an independent investigation uh, and you can find that it's currently on uplift I think it's it's between two thousand and two and a half thousand signatures in the last day which is amazing um, I'm afraid I don't have the link here. Uh, but maybe you can add it in later yeah and we can what we'll do is when we put this podcast out we can put the link in the description and we can put it up on twitter as well and um, we'll put it up on our twitter and facebook posts but that that they're great numbers for you know a day in but we want to see them you know yeah. quadrupled yeah. we want to see everybody get on board because it shouldn't need these things should never need to affect everybody for us to care and for us to get angry um but the reality is sometimes it, it does and this does affect everybody i mean it, it should be enough that it is it is autistic people that have been harmed so badly in this. But um, I think you're right. Sometimes in the framing of these stories, it's like 
the, the larger message about that these are just human rights that are being violated. And if one person's human rights are violated, all of our human rights are violated. Uh, Dave usually quotes, a, or usually repeats a quote on this about how, you know, if you if you look at how the state treat migrants and refugees, and, you know, that's how they treat the rest of us if we if they could get away with it. But um, thanks so much for speaking to us about that now, because that was just, that was really powerful. And it's great to actually hear, you know, your personal experience of it and like your own fears when you hear something like that, because Again, I was just so shook when I say that. And I have no faith in government departments. I just don't. And I think we've seen all these stories, you know, play out over the years. But this was something that just felt like on a whole other level of exploitation and brutality. Like it just felt really brutal. And there was just a complete lack of any kind of compassion in there. I'm going to probably move on to this story Michelle was talking about the front page of the Irish Times. And that is... (laughs) The Beacon Hospital. So Michelle, you know, really laid into them there and she was right. You know, we all want to see frontline workers uh, getting vaccinated. And it's amazing to think that the Beacon Hospital are the ones who, you know, private hospital are the ones to kind of prioritise them. But it, it was actually really sad to see. I seen people the other day kind of turn it on the teachers themselves and the, you know, and the crash workers as if like that they're the problem. And again, it's not the people in positions of power who completely abuse their position. And um, we did see today Stephen Donnelly come out and say that, like, I have to be honest, I'm glad that there's people, this has been taken seriously and hopefully we see some accountability off the back of it. I don't know if just shutting down the vaccine services were the way to do it. Like, it seems like a very reactionary, um, you know, we want, to, we want the public to think that we're doing something good here. I would have much rather, like, to be honest, I'd rather they just CPO the whole hospital and brought it under public ownership. But, Absolutely. But, yeah. National Health Service that we <laughs> just public like get rid of private hospitals just delete them put them into the public cpo them all this is the catalyst now uh if you're listening to this stephen donnelly which i doubt you are <laughs> this is your moment you go down as a public hero the rest of irish history this could, could be yeah. his moment I encourage him to take yeah. it i mean he could deal with it in fairness now after the past couple of months um but yeah, so yeah, give us your thoughts on it now. Like, what, what jumped out to you? Like, I, I doubt you were surprised, but like, what jumped out to you when you seen the story come out? Yeah, like, there's been a few things this week, kind of like, like both of you have said, um, in relation to the, the the huge data collection and in relation to this, it's that that phrase, shocked but not surprised. Um, and it's just, it's, I'd love to say it's unbelievable. I was about to say it's unbelievable, and that's the lie. Um, it's very believable. Um, and, and it's that thing, like, fully support teachers, childcare workers and care workers. Absolutely think they should be prioritised for the vaccine. But this was not that. This was, as, as Michelle said, they're not even in the same county. The, the, the obfuscation and arse covering in trying to pretend that they were just doing a public service and they could find nobody else to take this vaccine um, is just, I mean, do they take, do they take us for fools? Um, there were vulnerable people in that hospital couldn't receive the vaccine there were plenty of people in the surrounding area there were public schools there were there were so many and it's also as many other um healthcare providers have said the practice is to have an on-call list for no-shows to have a list of people in the order of priority as as designed i'm also going to put on my disability advocate hat here and say that it's all particularly shocking considering the amount of people who have been under lockdown for a year with no breaks between because of the the, the fatality to them if they catch COVID, yeah. who are nowhere near they have not there are no priority on the on the 
vaccination list. They have absolutely no idea when they're going to get vaccinated, no idea how long they're going to remain stuck in their houses. I mean, think of how how much it's it's getting to the rest of us. They're literally not able to step outside their house for yeah. a year. And then to hear that a bunch of private school, just because the, the they happened to the son of one of the doctors in the hospital happens to go there. I I wouldn't blame them if they just tore the place down, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah. I'd probably be cheering them on from the sidelines. And and then off the back of that, like you have the news of the people absconding from the mandatory quarantine in the Dublin Hotel. So like you know, these people are who potentially are coming back from holidays, having a lovely time. And they're just like, you know what? I'm not doing the mandatory quarantine. I'm out of here. Like, people, like there's just such different approaches to, you know, you're, t- you're talking about people who have been literally quarantined in their own homes for the last year because of health reasons, other, other reasons. And then you have people who are flying about, like, and can't even do a two-week stint in a, hot- in a hotel, which with all its luxuries, I'm sure, um, without having to try and break out as if it's some sort of like I I don't know like it's just the the contrast yeah. of the experiences of people right now is so bizarre like and what people are willing to sacrifice like when I think of that story and I think of the CEO of the beacon as well though I think this is a man responsible for healthcare to a lot of people like if you just strip it right back like we all know the arguments against it we know how awful it is I mean Kelly Talent is in the the examiner you know she has basically a rare lung disease and she speaks quite regularly about zero COVID and about being you know like that the she from day one has had like the risk to her life is so extreme that she has to she's had, she's had to quarantine from day one but she said it was like a kick in the teeth and it's like imagine knowing that I you know this could kill me like there's a very high chance that this could kill me and instead of prioritizing people like me, you are just going to, you know, do a favor for somebody. And when I think of the mentality of somebody who can do that, that their conscience would allow them to do that and know that they're responsible for the health care of thousands of people is just, oh, it's sickening. And again, yeah, none of us are surprised, but like it is like, it, it, yeah. Look, yeah, you, you, you say running a, like a health organization, but it's, it's a business, like they're doing it for profit. That's the difference. This is profit driven you know we're not talking about you know the best for public well like obviously they will tell you that you know they're doing the best for public health but it's private health it's private it's profit and that's what drives their motives you know um so if they can give their their pals over in the private school some extra stuff or whatever like vaccines i'm sure that that would be re there will be lovely repercussions for that for their children in the school. That's me just being cynical, maybe. I think that's you being very realistic. And I think that's born out of years of actually watching how, you know, political and business, you know, elites in this country work. Like we've seen it. It's that kind of, I was about to say corruption with a small C, but it's not. This is actually corruption with a very large capital C because, I mean, this has literally taken public vaccines publicly funded vaccines that they were only facilitating on behalf of the state and just saying well i'm just going to take a little bit of that for me now um yeah michelle did you want to move on to a new story you have something there yeah i suppose it look it all segues very nicely into you know when we're talking about profit and people having very different experiences in the world another front uh, times is bank of ireland paid three executives over one million and uh i suppose that this kind of yeah so the the story is there's three executives in bank of ireland and they all got over w- one million each last year. Um, and yeah, look, <laughs> I don't know. Like as I said, you'd, you'd like to be surprised. We're not surprised. Um, you know, there's the chief executive is on about nine hundred and sixty-one thousand um, 
like and we know that 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 was news that come out came out earlier in the year but the, the difference here is like I was I was out on the Devon's picket this morning with the the uh, ex-Devon's workers down in Waterford and I I pulled out this paper and on, this is on the front page and they were like we were talking about it and they were like that's a disgrace like Bank of Ireland is part part owned Debenhams like you know and like they 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 won't even give anything to their ex workers yet they're giving these three executives one million each. That's three million. That's all the Debenhams workers are asking for for as cash oh. as off the back of a year end dispute. When you compare that they're paying three individuals three million euro when they when a thousand Debenhams ex Debenhams workers are asking for a small cut in three million off the back of their uh, promises there when it came to the collective agreements like the like. I just it's the Bank of Ireland as well is part state owned as well so this is all uh, this is a triangle for me like Bank of Ireland state Devon's workers you're all failing the Devon's workers but yet the, the state it says in this article um that the state that this that literally there's more flexibility um for the state for for contracts like this to pay more than what's normal for kind of for state um state wages which is like to me it just says like the like more flexibility to provide for themselves like the government has literally been approving this so it says the bank which is 14% state owned must secure approval from the department of finance for roles that pay above 500,000 so the state are well aware on aware of these wages they're signing off on them they see no issue with this but then of course you know the bank lobbyists come out and they say you know, this is, we're, we're, it's so unfair. Don't, you know, you're picking on us for saying that we're getting so much money all the time. It's, but actually we're not getting as enough as we must, you know? It says, you know, I pre, there was a comment here by Francis McDonough again. Um, oh yeah, it's all, you know, it's all regulatory aligned. That's grand. And I appreciate, and she said this in the doll, in the Raptors Committee, I appreciate that given where the economy now is now, to talk about Irish bankers' bonuses is highly contentious. But like, of course it's contentious. <laughs> like, like uh, what are we supposed to feel sorry for you that you're getting a million a year? Like, how, like, I just, I, I, like, I don't know. I'll, I'll never be able to understand it. But like, they're, they're, they're kind of like, uh, they needed to attract key talent um, so that they're profitable and sustainable for the Irish banking sector. And that we need, they, I, another quote from her is like, we need to develop a more normalised remuneration approach normalized more normalized than one million a year yeah. by normalized she mean more and by normalized how is one million a year normalized like i just i i don't know i don't know what would happen if i had a conversation with one of these ba- bankers i just don't think we'd be able to converse because we completely live in different planets like yeah. this to me is just not i actually think just hearing you talk about all those millions brings me to another story actually which is around the adoption files so there's a couple of the adoption agencies have been kind of pleading at this stage I think with um, Minister O'Gorman about the adoption files so basically like the I think there's like 4,000 files with the AAI the Adoption Authority of Ireland that aren't complete so they're missing information um, and the ICCL you know from a human rights perspective Ahintus and the clan project you know Claire McGetchen particularly was speaking on it have all come in to say that you know well ICCL made the point that you know Adopted people have a, a right to their information and to know, you know, and to have any information that relates to them. The AAI basically came out and said that it would not be feasible, feasible to do this. They said that it would be uh, too costly and time consuming. 
There's 11 and a half million from the mother and baby homes report that went unspent. And I mean, that's, listen, that's a whole other conversation. And we've had it about how they could have come up with a report like the one they did and not have spent 11 and a half million. Um, but that 11 and a half million should be used now to fund this. Like it's a very, there's a very clear, you know, line um, between the two issues. There's a very clear uh, need for this to uh, to be done. And I think like listening to, you know, listening to somebody like Claire McGettrick, who basically she was saying like she wants a centralised archive to, to properly catalogue the files and make sure that they're available to the people that are affected by them. That's going to cost some money. There's 11 and a half million sitting there in the Mother and Baby Homes Report. AAI are returning, uh, you know, saying that's not possible because it's costly and time consuming. Here's a really, really easy answer. And again, it's like I feel there's so many stories this week that it just feels like this constant neglect starts off with neglect and it ends with full-on exploitation and abuse of power but this is one of those situations again where it's kind of like you know this is what we have to adopt to people and this is what you're getting you know be happy with the files that you have and it's just it's again it's how we treat people and whole groups in society as if they're less than and if they're just less deserving of basic decency and the same rights that any you know anyone else deserves and I just think that when we when I hear figures like again, you've said that three million would would pay all of the Debenhams workers. You know, there's eleven and a half million here uh, that wasn't spent on the mother and baby homes report that could very easily cover this other issue. But when we need some money for bankers from a state owned bank, you know, it's there, and it's it's just like I feel like we have these conversations over and over again all the time. But it's quite yeah, it's quite sickening. I know, and like as well, like it's it's kind of heartbreaking. There's another story as well in the Irish Times around uh, oral hearing for Bespera Home Development Plan. So, on board, Panala has decided to hold an oral hearing into the plans for the controversial housing development on the site of the mother uh, baby home there in Bespera. And I suppose like the the Cork Survivors and Supporters Alliance are calling for like a proper examination of the Bespera grounds because like there's only been burial records for 64 um, infants. But yes, there is reports of um, how many, 923 um, infants born are associated with Bespera having died there. So like you're talking about 859 infants whose burial place remains unknown. And yet this big housing developer like is in conflict with these survivors who are looking for answers. And it's just it's just heartbreaking to think the, the the turmoil that people in Cork must be going through at the moment. And actually, a lot of people from surrounding areas, I know pe- people from Waterford were sent to Grasper as well. Like, it's, it's just, look, it's, it's, yeah, it's just a kind of a follow-on from that. But they're, they're ha- having an oral hearing anyway on the development plan. So it'll be interesting to keep an, air, uh, an eye on that to see what will happen. I, I, I know the campaign group are making submissions to the oral hearing at the moment and we'll kind of know by the end of next month as to like how what happens in there and what's the next step but it, it's just an on, ongoing like but look it, all I can say is I'm glad there is some move, movement that there might be some answers for families um but yeah it it, it it is kind of worrying to see to see see all of this still happening you know and obviously I, I hope that, that 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 those families and those campaigners um do get the answers that they want um in that site particularly as well yeah and it's another one of those situations where like how how did we even end up here like how is this a conversation that's happened I mean it's absolutely it's it's just extraordinary I want to touch on one um and it's about so it's the upcoming Shannon election and like I don't know if anybody has seen but Hazel Chew who is the chairperson of the Greens um you know is a councillor of the Greens is the is the current Lord Mayor 
uh, wanted to run. And, you know, she wrote actually she wrote a letter basically if, and it was, it was talking about representation and diversity and, um, you know, how important it was that even if she knew she wasn't going to get elected, that she thinks it's important for young people to. And, and, and as someone who has probably experienced as much, if not more racism than any other public rep in the past year, like she gets absolutely really intense, like from death threats right down to people actually turning up at, at her, her residence, you know, as the Lord Mayor. And she wanted to run and the Green Party wouldn't back her. They said that they were, you know, as government partners, that they were going to support the, you know, the government candidate. Now, they didn't have a, they did, you know, they weren't obliged to do that. But obviously being the good boys and girls that they are, they were, you know, the party leadership wanted to do that. So Hazel managed to secure the, the nominations um, from a couple of independents and a couple of the, the CEG backed her. So now we're in a situation during the week that um, we have a couple Funnily enough, I think it was very calculated that it was three women. Three women senators came out and criticised Hazel, you know, to talk, saying that her move was undermining the government. And like, I listen, I'm not a fan of the Green Party. I think they've done an incredible amount of harm going into government. And, um, you know, the vast majority of what they've done is probably unsurprising to most, but it has just been one disappointment after disappointment. But there is a very real argument around the Hazel Chew story around representation and diversity. And seeing this play out publicly, what the Green Party, and particularly using three women in the Green Party, because I don't doubt for a second that there are some men who have a much bigger issue with this, particularly one that's in Hazel Chew's own constituency and doesn't want to run it against him, um, who happens to be leader of the party, um, feel about this. And I just, yeah, I just want to hear your thoughts on it because it's been absolutely outrageous to watch it all play out. You know, Green Party senators going on the radio, talk, you know, attacking Hazel Chew and asking why she's not sitting across from them, basically, and completely ignoring the commentary around representation and how important it is to have an Irish Asian woman as public as she is and the offices she's already held be backed by her own party it's so important that they they had to back her and they've completely thrown her under the bus and we see too much of that in Irish politics particularly in underrepresented communities yeah definitely um I'm not going to comment on internal green party politics which there always seems to be something new every week but um I have like the, the just the, the lack of represent kind of recognition of that and also like just that fairly disingenuous argument of, uh, oh, we didn't, we didn't think she'd win, so she shouldn't run. Um, like that could be said about about every marginalised community, including women. Like that is not a reason not to run a candidate. It is very important to run uh, people from all, from diverse backgrounds and to have that representation. And nobody can doubt Hazel Shields' credentials for the job. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's the thing. Like, it's it's the fact that this will, and I will totally go there about internal Green Party politics. Like, I mean, I think it's absolutely crazy that they would, they would see something like this. They would look at a situation um, that has angered them so much. They're obviously clearly angry that Hazel has gone against their wishes, that they would publicly come out on it. I mean, how they don't realise how bad that looks for them. Like, even if it was in a disingenuous way that they just bit their tongue and didn't say anything, the power dynamics at play here, that they just couldn't do that. And I think, again, it just goes back to that power. And I think the person who was probably most angry about this has sent other people out to attack one of his own party members. And again, somebody who was attacked publicly on on a daily basis. And it just goes to show that when some parties and some politicians talk about diversity and inclusion it's a it's a box ticking exercise and they actually when it comes to the moment where they could actually publicly take a stand on it and show some support where it's needed it, it falls through yeah and the fact that they didn't did, with this they didn't seek to have a conversation with her about this before 
bringing it out into the public and that they're trying to claim it's all because she drew attention away from the climate bill. Um, this has drawn far more attention away from it. Um, that, that's, that's just a spurious claim. It, it feels very personal. It feels she stepped out of line and, and it's about that. And it also feels uh, kind of broad, more broadly as a constituent that they're far more interested in egos and party politics than in what's best for the rest of us in the country. Yeah, like to, like we're not ta- like nobody's talking about the fact that Hazel's running. We're all talking about the fact that the Greens have attacked Hazel for running. So that's yeah, that argument is ridiculous. Michelle, do you want to run this? No one, no one's talking about the climate action bill. Sorry, what is going on? Like, where are the Greens coming out as loud and as and as like where are all the statements from them saying that they're you know they're they're not happy with you know maybe the potential of what's coming the draft is coming out of the climate action bill. I like obviously there's a lot of discourse around the hazel thing and everything but like how is it that there is more talk about this than there is about the so-called policy the champion policy that the green party have run and formed this coalition on mere mere whisper of it like and i'm in those spaces like why there's there's far more talk about this this by-election by seat that is not probably even possible to get than there is for a life-changing climate action bill that is going to affect us for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And yet it's not splashed across. It's it's not even in this newspaper. It's In this paper, it's in a little paragraph about a story about the Green Party strife. strife. There's not even an article on it. And like that in itself, it really tells me like the state of the state of politics right now it's all about uh this the like the drama the individuals and all of that and like yes there's obviously like points behind that but what about the policy what about the policy that's going to affect us like nobody's talking about the fact that this policy still doesn't address properly a just transition for workers and communities that are rapidly affected by uh climate change it don't, it's not properly talking about global solidarity and our like our global efforts when it comes to climate change um it's it, you know we're not talking about the fact that lngs aren't in the climate action bill it's been it's been removed and like that means you know that there's no ban for offshore drilling or explore, exploration or importing fracked gas and like this is what we actually should be talking about and like I know there was another article I read somewhere else that said oh well we'll bring in an LNG bill somewhere else in a different way um in a different way um to to kind of like help you know we you know we won't address it in this climate action bill but we will address it in another bill um but like to me that screams of exactly what happened with the the co-living um you know it was that whole thing of like oh, we'll put that over there and we'll delay it. We'll delay it, we'll delay it, we'll delay it. And then just this, almost the same day that the Climate Action Bill dra- new draft was released, the Shannon LNG project, uh, the, the developers down there have put in another, applica- or have talked about putting in another application. So are the Ooh. Green Party going to stand over, delaying, delaying, putting in a ban? Yes, putting in a ban against LNGs. Are they going to delay enough time until that application can get in? In the same way, that um, Darrell O'Brien said, you know, we, we, you know, of course we will ban uh, co-living. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a terrible thing. But they waited until every single one of those co-living applications were in, so that once they were in the system, the ban came in. And yet, months later, we're still seeing those planning applications going through because they got in before the deadline and they can be accepted um, once they're in before that. So, are we going to wait a couple of months now for another bill separate to this? I don't know why I can't be addressing this on LNGs 
so that we can wait for all of these LNG applications to come in. And then, of course, then we can say, oh, no, we banned it uh, a month later. Great news. But actually, all of the LNG applications have come in already. So, like, I, I don't know. That's that's more what I, my outrage is at the moment is, like, what, what is actually going on here? Because to me, it just screams of another tactic to, like, let the developers win and still look like they, they're providing a win for us. Nah. Totally. Um, and the fact that I didn't even, I didn't even know that those LNG applications had gone in, probably because I was spending all my time looking at the Green Party soap opera, <laughs> which, which makes your exact point. Um, so come here, I'm going to, we, we're going to go to NEM now for you. And thankfully, we have some good news to, to finish off this week. NEM, do you want to fill us in on that story? Yeah, I just thought this was an important week to, to share some good news. Um, but in my usual ranty style, I'm going to... Um, just mentioned how it ties into other bad news. Um, so it's great to see that the Vesper are getting an oral hearings. And so, uh, first of all, I'll tell you what it is. Um, so the first same-sex parents have been recognised as parents of their children from birth in Ireland. And that is just amazing. That is just brilliant. And there's a lot of people who work very hard to make that happen. Um, but I just want to say, kind of as an LGBTQIA plus rights activist as well, that part of what has held this up has actually been our approach to adoptions. The fact that this country will is digging its heels in to, to come up in line with other countries internationally on open adoptions, on people's right to their own information. And that has been part of the puzzle on why same-sex sex couples, um, because adoption and parenting rights um, and rights to identity affect uh, in vitro and affect all of our, our rights to assisted human reproduction. And that in turn has affected same sex couples who have had have been using uh, assisted human reproduction and their recognition as parents of their of their children. So this is a brilliant step forward and it's so positive. And I'm absolutely delighted with the couple down in Cork, I believe. And they look happy and they're just a lovely family. And I wish them all the best. Oh, that's, yeah, I read that uh, today and it was such a lovely story. A hell of a long time coming. I mean, um, but yeah, really brilliant story. And unfortunately, we do yeah. actually have one more story. Um, and we have apparently, Michelle, we have a new radical housing activist on the scene. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, apparently David Mac Williams is going to be leading us on the new uh, housing strikes that that they're going to sweep the country. Um, oh, lads, I had to laugh. Like, I'm sorry now to, to, to come in on the back of that story, but like, stay away from the property market is the is the title um and like okay so the article goes on to say how you know 2020 sees the lowest supply of homes and that today's market suppliers have gone on strike so he's saying that the supply is because the suppliers um are on strike you know and dave mcwilliams response to that is aspiring buyers should respond to this year's property supply strike by instigating a buyer strike well Oh, did I laugh when I was reading this? But when I was when it, when it goes on, it you know it says you know imagine imagine a generation embargoing the market until prices and value come back to reality. And then my favorite quote from the piece is: "So rather than vote for a political party that actually builds home, eradicates and penalizes dereliction, forces vacant properties in the country to be made available as homes, curtailed." Uh, ridiculous planning restrictions throws out uh, bogus nimbyism planning holdups and eliminates height restriction extraordinary selling behavior 30s take it into their own hands so he's suggesting don't vote for people for, so, so, so he's suggesting don't vote for people who would actually supply policies that would fix 
some of the housing crisis. He's saying, do you know what? Leave it off. You go on strike. Don't buy houses. As if one, like that's gonna like as if that's gonna make any impact. And um, because like I, I'm not in the 30 something year old category he mentions, but like I'm part of generation rent. And like we can't even think about buying houses. And he's saying, do you know what? Actually, as an act of radicalism, why don't you all just not buy houses? I'm like, Grand, thanks, David McWilliams. Thanks for you know giving us that permission to not buy houses because do you know what? It's not actually really been an option for any of us. Um, but is he actually saying that we should continue to bo- like vote Fianna Gael because, like, because we can just go on strike and that will counteract that? Like, don't vote for the left, just vote Fianna Gael and strike property strike. What is a property strike? I'm sorry, David. I don't know if you're aware, but like us and Generation Rent are actually trying to organise so that we can like. But at the same time, we're almost even in such a precarious position that we can't even rent strike. Never mind. Talk about a property strike. <laughs> it's absolutely comical where this man is coming from on this one. Like, I, I just had to laugh. Sorry. Had to get that in. And um, Nemes was mentioning there that there was a... Uh, there's been a couple of votes, I think, in the doll and across um, the council uh, in the past. Well, this week particularly, I mean, there was a... Do you want to jump in there, Nem? So I know we were talking about the the voting against the the rent raises but also the issues of traffic yeah. accommodation this week yeah yeah they just sprang to mind when uh, michelle was talking about that wonderful piece yeah that we've we've all been on a on a, a property strike ahead of them it's not that we have absolutely no chance of, of getting a house we've we've making a very quiet political statement this whole time um and also i'm sure that uh, international vulture funds and that are definitely reading his articles and, and going to go along with his advice too so we'll all be sources um but just it just reminded me of the fact that um while they they continued the eviction ban for people who've lost income from, under covid they uh, voted down um halting rent rises um which like has been shown and experts are saying is 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 going to result in evictions dur- during this ongoing pandemic there's whatever about not buying houses on the market uh, but the the social housing still hasn't hasn't picked up it's still not there and, and there was a uh, a piece i unfortunately wasn't able to to get it in depth but um again shocking but in no way surprising that traveler accommodation which Across the board, for decades, the small, meagre allocation of traveller accommodation uh, fund for the councils is never drawn down in full or anywhere near it. And then the uh, Council of Europe, I think it was, but don't quote me on that, saying that the the accommodation that is there for travellers is below uh, standards. Like absolutely. That's it. And they were warned about that the last time. In the last report, seven years ago, they were. It said the same thing that we do not have suitable or like it's it's just absolutely below standard for traveler accommodation and social housing and then just last week i'm sure lots of people are aware of what's happened for for once Waterford county council is in is in the national news and that that's because they voted down um traveler accommodation uh planning for traveler accommodation in waterford and like off the and there was obviously like outrage from some people, but you know there was a lot of people backing that in the community as well. It was really hard to see that, you know. Um, but like at the end of the day, if councillors can't can't make decisions based on what they think will get them votes, 
or um you know and rather than actual what the the needs are for the community um and that including the traveler community then traveler accommodation allocation needs to be and planning needs to ta- be taken out of councils and i don't say that like, lightly as someone who advocates for more power to councils but it's very clear that whether it be nimbyism or racism or whatever we like year on year traveler accommodation uh, budgets are not spent and it's not delivered and it's just not acceptable um travelers um have like really bad uh, issues when it comes to trying to find suitable accommodation and they're overrepresented in housing services as I'm sure because as I'm sure you're aware as well Claire in your work but it's just shocking and it just had to be yeah we had to mention it there because it needs to be highlighted we need to we we need to be advocating as well and making sure that we're you know holding our representatives to account but also making sure that we're supporting the community and um, that are being affected by these decisions. Yeah totally and I think as well I mean I know just from councillors that I work with that how hard it is for them to even get this onto the table. So even trying to raise or even trying to create specific um, housing committees related to traveller accommodation and that the how sometimes the committees can be allocated. People just want to get onto a committee, you know, to have it on their on their CV, to, so to speak, or to be getting an extra payment for chairing a committee or all that kind of stuff like that. that it's really hard for the people who are actually trying to advocate on behalf of travellers. And I, that comes back to, is that, again, we need to be actually creating opportunities for travellers to be able to come into these positions and advocate on their own behalf because nobody is going to be able to advocate for the rights of, of traveller accommodation than somebody who actually has lived in the situation or is working with people who are still living in that situation. And I mean, we do, we come across a disproportionate amount of people, uh, traveller, um, travellers and homeless accommodation and on the streets as well. And it's just it's absolutely it's just horrific and it's it, it's it's racism it's blatant racism and accepted racism is the most accepted form of racism that we have through our arms of the state I think and I, I don't know like I've heard that argument before and part of me does think that there needs to be a state it needs to be a state responsibility because of the, the level of importance on it and um, I don't know if they would even take it more seriously or because we, we've seen TDs use traveler racism as a as a as a voker so yeah, it's it's like it's it's absolutely desperate that we're still in this situation. And I think as well, linking it back just even to the renters. I mean, the threshold came came out this week about an, uh, a proposed new bill which would basically like exclude renters and arrears from the protection of the blanket moratorium moratorium on, on evictions. So, and again, it's one of these really crafty ways. I think that the the government will put something forward as if it's a positive. So they're they're saying that they're going to increase protection. Um, for renters who've lost income of COVID-19 uh, and who have declared this to the RTB. But at the same time, they're going to remove protection for all other renters. And, you know, we have the general moratorium on evictions, um, which is, which is by the way, tied to the five kilometre travel restriction. Uh, but also we have like the, the COVID-19 related loss of income. So, you know, the, there are protections that are there that are actually going to be removed. And it's just a real exploitation, I think, of the current situation um, that, right across the board again people in the most vulnerable situations it's just a way to exclude them yet again and it's a way for them that they're not being represented and not only are they not being represented we're actually going to make the situation 100 times worse for you so i would love to say that we'd ended this week on a a high note that's a particularly dark note this week because unfortunately um it's one of those situations i think particularly around traveler accommodation and the treatment of travelers in general that there's very slow movement on it. I mean, look, we have incredible people like Eileen Flynn, who was, you know, massively doing the work there and, and beating that drum. And I would love to see, you know, a lot more space made available for people from the traveling community and all marginalised groups um, to be able to actually represent their own communities. Because unfortunately, I think until we're in that position, it is still going to be an uphill battle. 
Um, this has been the week in work. Huge thanks this week to to my co-host Michelle Bourne, but also to Nem Cairns. That was that was brilliant, Nem, and thanks for sharing your personal experience of that story this week. We are the week at work. We're a part of Left Block, who are a political education project and a, a media project. Um, if you would like to find out some more information or if you'd like to support us, we're on patreon.com forward slash left block. That's block with a C, no K. Okay.